Welcome to episode 12 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey and I am the culture editor of Country and Townhouse. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor of Country and Townhouse. We could well be having to go back to being lockdown culture next week, but please keep listening because we'll be here with news from across the cultural spectrum, whatever happens next. In the meantime, we are absolutely thrilled to welcome Andrew Lloyd Webber, a man who needs no introduction, as all of you will know who he is. But having said that, I can't resist reminding you of all of his amazing achievements. He has 21 musicals to his name. He'll probably correct me on that later, including Phantom of the Opera, Cats, Evita. I remember going to the premiere of Evita when I was a little schoolboy with my parents and School of Rock. He's won 45 awards, including a Grammy, a Tony and an Oscar. He set up the really useful theatre group that owns some of London's biggest theatres, including the London Palladium and the Theatre Royal Drury Lane. He's got a peerage for services to the arts. He is a massive patron of the arts, culture and heritage via his foundation. He's also president of the Arts Educational School in London. I know Charlotte is also very excited to have Andrew on because she never misses an opportunity to see Jesus Christ superstar. But anyway... As I think it's pretty obvious, Andrew is a titan in the world of musical theatre and we are very honoured to have him with us today. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Andrew. And I'm so delighted to be talking to you because, as Ed says, Jesus Christ Superstar has been the soundtrack to my life. And our listeners will have heard me banging on and on and on and waxing lyrical about the recent production at Regent's Park Theatre. But we want to start today by just giving you the floor to tell us your views, because I heard you talk on the radio quite recently about your frustration at seeing Phantom being staged in Japan, while theatre here seems to be on the brink of the abyss. So we're going to talk to you about Theatre World Drury Lane in a minute, but can you just start by telling our listeners your thoughts on the future of British theatre? Well, uh, the, obviously, Phantom of the Opera was playing, uh, the, where, where it really kept going initially was in South Korea, where they had a very efficient testing and track, track and, and tracing uh, system, which uh, they got going very much earlier than we did. And of course, that was the reason that they were really able to keep their theatres open. It's, it, of course, now, I mean, things are, are moving, as we all know, day by day, and one can get into a very, in a very speculative situation. I mean, we we were able to prove that uh, that the London Palladium, we, we did a test event with Beverly Knight, which was originally supposed to be a full house event to show that we could get back to 100% opera, uh, uh, capacity capacity but in fact was a, was done at a 50% capacity but the idea was to show that the theatres can be made safe adopting all the measures that have been done in South Korea very interestingly i had over the weekend some news from New York from basically from uh, Disney that they are trialing something in their theatres that looks like to be a major breakthrough. I I kind of know what's in it. Um, it's a it's a it, it it's something that hangs around in the atmosphere, and I I know the the chemical that they're using there now. I mean, you, who knows? All of these things are all a help. But um, as as you may know, I I went on to the Oxford vaccine course because I I think that the um, I think really it's going to be a combination of the vaccine and when that gets rolled out and really I think it that, that, that it's going to be that plus the better treatment that we now know we can do for the virus I think that that's going to get things back to normal we know we can make the theatres 100% safe or much much safer than the outside 
Well, what, are, what is the key to that, Andrew? Well, the first thing to say is, is that obviously with the theatre, we know exactly who is sitting in every seat now because of the way you can, you, we would book would mean that we would absolutely be able to tr- trace anybody who had any, any sign of any, any symptom. And that's what they did in Korea. For example, they had a case uh, in a musical called Mozart there uh, in August last year where somebody did come up with the, in the audience who, and they're all wearing masks, of course, but, um, but, but some did come up in, in the audience as, as positive and they were able to immediately find the 60 people within the in the vicinity and none of them none of them got the virus hygiene is vital of course but air handling incredibly important that we get that you know as good as possible in the theaters that means ventilation all the ventilation yep uh, that that is something that um, and I, I actually belonged before this virus I felt was very strongly about personally so we we've we've got all our theatres really really as up to scratch as any old building can be and it, it's not just that and the theatres can be fogged I, I'm not sure about whether the new thing I've learnt about from America how that will be applied but um, but you could under what we've been doing before you fog everything you fog backstage with and and that that's something that kills the virus, but you do that before the audience gets there. I mean, there are so many measures that can be done. If you could wave a magic wand and tomorrow morning reopen your theatres with suitable protection, do you think the audience would respond? Is there pent-up demand, or do you think a lot of people would be nervous about going back anyway? Well, all I could say is is that the concert that Cameron McIntosh announced of Les Miserables sold out more or less immediately, uh, and... Ditto the Palladium Pantomime. And the Palladium Pantomime, of course, is in a much, much bigger theatre, being, i.e. the Palladium. And even at half capacity, that's 1,100 seats. Um, and, I mean, for the whole run to go clean like that shows the appetite that's there. I mean, you, you, I mean, I know Jesus Christ Superstar in Regent's Park was in the open air, but they sold out immediately. Yeah, I, I think there's a, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, nor could I for the last night. <laughs> but but, but the, the, pent, the, the pent-up demand for theatre, in my view, is absolutely huge in Britain. And can I ask a slightly uh, provocative question? I mean, you've got a, because of who you are, uh, you're well-respected, so if you want to speak to the government, you can. Presumably you've sort of handed them, effectively, kind of the proverbial sheet of A4, saying, here are 10 things everyone could do now, and you could reopen the theatres. And what's been their reaction? As it were, people in my company who are far more qualified than I, because they <laughs> sort of understand all the science of all of this, um, have indeed done that. Um, and I, I must say that, I mean, Oliver Dowden, um, you know, the Secretary of State for Culture, uh, a role that you did, of course, magnificently once, um, is he, he, um, he really has been a big champion. He really has. Um, but, of course, everybody really is, uh, you know, a, a, really bowing down to Public Health England and what the scientists have been advising. So nobody can wave a magic wand well, while they have their views. I mean, all, all, all we can do is to demonstrate that the buildings are as safe as they possibly can be. Let's talk a bit about the Theatre Royal Jewelry Lane. It's been shut since 2019. You plan to reopen it with Frozen next April, although you've already said you don't think May. We'll get May. May. I, I think Disney want to stick to April. Yes. I mean, I was just going to say you invested 60 million in it and it, uh, I think it was built in 1812, although the original site is a 17th century site. You're putting in more seats and new entrances. You're uncovering the beautiful grand cantilevered grand staircase that was lost 100 years ago. 
and it's going to be a fabulous all-day space with bars and restaurants. Can you tell us a bit more about your vision for Drury Lane? Well, the Theatre Royal Drury Lane is has got the biggest stage in London, um, and it's a it's of course. Uh, one of London's oldest theatres. There was a theatre on the site going right back to Charles II's reign, as you, you just rightly said. Um, it was remodelled uh, several times. The great front of house area was designed by Benjamin Wyatt Riot, uh, in, uh, and it was built in 1812. It was, uh, it's a fantastic, uh, fantastic building. Probably the best suite of Greek revival, built, uh, Greek revival style uh, rooms in London or anywhere really. Um, it, and, and it's been a great um, joy to me because I love architecture and it's been a great joy to me to be able to bring all of that back, which is what we've been able to do. A lot of it had been boxed up and, it, it, and the, uh, the entrance to the theatre had been moved from Wyatt's day. So you had to go down uh, into a kind of basement area to come up to go into the stalls or all really ridiculous um, but the consequence of the fact that the Wyatt Auditorium was demolished uh, in 1922 roughly and replaced with a sort of I mean an auditorium frankly that you know would have been better suited to a cinema which I, I'm wondering whether that was uh, what they really had in mind because they did show films there for a bit in the uh, in the 1920s um, but it, it, it's it, it, I'll put it this way I always remember a guy called Robert Nesbitt I, I don't know if anybody really remembers Robert Nesbitt but he was the king of variety he was the the big man and um, he produced every year the Royal Variety Show and I remember funnily enough at the time of Jesus Christ Superstar when I was very young uh, that the Royal Variety Show was coming from the Theatre Royal Drury Lane and I was invited to do something on it and I sat in the stalls with Robert Nesbitt and, and he said I just want to tell you young man one thing which if you go anywhere in theatre it's a really good thing to remember and he said that uh, if you've got half an audience the London Palladium, which is the same size uh, in audience terms as the Theatre Royal Drury Lane, is half full. The Theatre Royal Drury Lane is half empty. And it stayed with me all my life. Um, and so the first thing I thought when we remodelled the auditorium of the Theatre Royal is we must try and make it as warm and as, uh, and, as, and, and as intimate as we possibly can. And so we brought the dress circle forward. We've closed off the back of the stalls and we've reduced the seating capacity from 2,200 to around about 2,000, just under 2,000. And we've also, which is really thrilling, been able to find a way that we could also in that theatre play in the round. Oh, so wow. I, my ambition, uh, my, my great joy would be to prove... John Gilgood, who memorably, when he was doing The Tempest, which I saw as a little boy, that production, in the lane, uh, on the last night he broke Prospero's staff and he said, this is because Drury Lane will be lost to Shakespeare and will now forever be the home of musicals. And <laughs> what, I would, what I would love to do uh, is to prove him wrong and uh, to have a Shakespeare season in the lane in the round one day. Oh, that's wonderful. I think another thing, um, Andrew, that's so amazing about what you're doing is you're really thinking about, the. you know, you were talking earlier about ventilation. But the other thing that I'm slightly excited about, which obviously is a very minor thing, but you've put <laughs> 55 women's loos in this theatre. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but this is important. I mean, that's that's been, um, I have to say, my wife, uh, Madeline, she's 
she's the uh, the champion of this. And uh, every single theatre, we, we do, we're doing work to all of them. The Gillian Linney we're remodelling at the moment. Um, I mean, the moment we, we heard that lockdown was going to happen, um, which we, we, we thought it was extremely likely at the beginning of February, actually, I, I got the whole team together and we said, look, what are the things that we would like to do to the theatres that we can't do when we've got a show in them? Yeah. Um, I mean, Drury Lane was happening anyway, um, but Gillian Lynn was where I'm hoping, well, I will be opening my new Cinderella when we're allowed to, but um, we thought it's, this is not going to go away. So we grasped the nettle and we, we rebuilt, we've done a huge amount of work there. Um, and, and I think the theatre is going to be pretty super when it's finished. Uh, and we've also done the same uh, with Her Majesty's, um, which is with Phantom of the Opera having been there for 35 odd years almost. Um, you know, it, it needed it. Um, so we tried to make a bit of a virtue out of all of that by, by doing work. And Ladies Lose, I can assure you, have been high on that list of priorities. Um, I know Charlotte's going to talk to you about Cinderella in one second, but I just want to ask one quick question before we get off the topic of theatre architecture. Is there a case to say that there are some theatres in the West End, albeit technically heritage, that are not particularly special? Going to a sort of middle of the road 19th century theatre in the West End is not a pleasant experience with small seats, not enough ladies lose. And some people think perhaps we should knock a few of them down and build proper spectacular modern theatre spaces with the, all the bells and whistles. I'm sure you know that fabulous little collection of essays by John Betjeman called First and Last Loves. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's interesting that you, you should say that because there is a, a essay in there on the architecture of entertainment. And um, I think I'm paraphrasing, but um, it kicks off by Betjeman saying the architecture of entertainment is by definition impermanent. Um, and he goes on to say uh, that, you know, that he's not particularly um, kind about the architecture of entertainment, actually. But he, he goes on to say that um, fashions change, tastes change. And, and of course, that's absolutely right. What one really, in a way, wants is the most flexible possible space. It's a real, it's a real conundrum. I mean, if you take a theatre like The Palace in London that I owned and is now owned by um, Nika Burns and Max Weisenhofer, I, I mean, that was built by Doily Cart as the English Opera House. And it, it's a magnificent Victorian building, but it's got a very vertiginous, very vertiginous gallery. And it, that is a case in point where you've got a marvellous, marvellous building as such but I would have thought one day one day it will need to be remodelled in some way um, and that that goes against me with my um, love of Victorian architecture that goes against everything I'm saying and funny enough Betjeman sing, uh, singles out the palace as an example uh, where he says the architecture of entertainment goes beyond the architecture of entertainment into the realms of a work of art so I don't know. Um, it's a tricky one. Can no, we talk sure. about Cinderella now? Yes, yes. Tell us all about that because you just mentioned it. When is that going to open, do we think? And tell us a bit about your collaboration with Emerald Fennell. What happened was about five years ago, I was at a dinner in New York with a lot of very, very major TV executives. Um, and I was rather out of my depth because I didn't really know too much about TV, really. Um, <laughs> and they, um, at, the end, at the end, they were all saying, what was the biggest thing that ever happened on television? And uh, they were all saying, ah, Super Bowl with Michael Jackson or blah, 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 you know, and all of that. And I said, hang on a moment. I think you might find that Rodgers and Hammerstein 
Airlines Cinderella uh, in 1956 was way up there, if not actually the biggest audience that ever happened for American TV. And they looked at me as if I was a sort of poor, <laughs> sad, you know, kind of thing. The poor, poor boy, you know, he loves his theatre, but he's a bit past it. So one of them Googled, one of them Googled it and uh, said, oh, holy mackerel, <laughs> he's right. And um, so immediately these TV executives said, oh, well, why don't you do a Cinderella for us? Well, because, hold uh, on, just one second. How many people watched the Cinderella in 56? I didn't know this. Is it, it's about 120 million. No. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> unbelievable. It was Rogers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. It was done live. Uh, it was one of the first things to be done in colour on American TV. Um, and it was starring Julie Andrews. Uh, and, oh it, uh, and it's something that, that we in this country, we don't really know it. Um, because I, I don't think it was never shown here. I, I don't know why, actually, but it was never shown. But it, the whole thing was it was a live event. And uh, most of America at the time seemed to watch it. Incredible. Anyway, um, so these TV execs said, you know, why don't I do one? And so I got blitzed with the most ghastly stories that you can imagine. You know, I mean, you, you could kind of <laughs> guess the sort of thing. Um, and and, and uh, so... Um, I just happened to be, I know um, Emerald's dad, Theo, very, very well, Theo Fennell, the jeweller. Uh, Friend of and, the programme. Uh, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah indeed. Theo. Yes. And, and Theo, anyway, so, you know, well, I was, I, I've known Emerald since she was about two. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, I, I um, was having lunch with, uh, with them uh, around the corner from us here and in, in Hampshire. And uh, Emerald was at the lunch and she said, can I have a crack at it? So I said, well, you send me a synopsis, but I'm pretty dubious. Anyway, she sent me this brilliant, very funny, very alternative uh, storyline. And I thought, do you know what, I'm going to do this. Um, and, but of course, me being me, I hijacked it from TV and put it in the theatre. So we hoped we were supposed to have opened three weeks ago, but um, I'm, I've got a sort of tentative opening in April. My, I realistically think it'll probably be May, but I am very optimistic that we will be open in May. So that's what we're aiming for. Well, this will be. Uh, this is going to be an amazing, amazing hit. This Cinderella, isn't it? I mean, I, well, I've been, I don't know. We talked. Well, can we just remind our listeners of that Emerald wrote uh, Killing Eve? Yes, yeah, she wrote the second series yes. of Killing Eve, and. Yeah. Uh, she had, I mean, she's got a film coming out, um, which, which is absolutely, um, I mean, she, she would, she's, she's really sort of um, very much in the kind of school of young writers who I think everybody's going to, you know, uh, and, and she, I mean, I'm very lucky to have got a script out of her. Given what we've all been through and what theatre's been through, to have this Cinderella opening touch wood as we potentially return to normal will be, I think, an amazing cultural event. I'm already, my... The hairs on the back of my neck are already standing on end. Well, what I did do is was when, when we realised that um, we were going to go into lockdown of some kind, um, I got my young head of music of my, uh, of, of my company to come down and he locked down with us. And um, I did something which is force majeure. You, you think of Jesus Christ Superstar. We made the album of Jesus Christ Superstar first because no theatre producer wanted to produce it. So I thought, well, what I'm going to do with Cinderella is because I can't get it on stage, I'm going to make the album. And so we made it all at, at Sydmonton and uh, at home. And um, we, we literally programmed the whole thing. We'd be saying, this is how I want the orchestrations to sound. And we then literally layered it up with, a, uh, uh, with I have, have to say, uh, a virtual orchestra. And uh, we so then finished 
And so we finished off the obviously bits of it in the last. I I I I suddenly thought again I have to put my foot on the accelerator here, and so we got all of the cast and all and various guest artists together, put the vocals on in London in the last three or four weeks, and we just uh, we're just this next this week I'll finish the album. So so we'll have the whole thing ready to go and released in the new year. And who's the star of the show, as it were? Carrie Hope Fletcher is playing Cinderella, who was the star of Heather's in London. Oh, yeah. uh, and she's a, um, a, a really, really talented girl. And I've uh, really been thrilled about the fact that we found a young boy called Ivano Turco, who um, came in as, to audition as a dancer. And we've cast him as the lead opposite her. He's just straight out of drama school. And uh, it's it's thrilling because he's a boy of colour, he's to really, really um, a, a major talent. You mentioned you started with Cinderella being shown in 1956 on television. I wondered what you think of theatre and indeed musical theatre online. Has Covid made you think differently about the complementary nature of putting stuff online? Well, no, because <laughs> I've, 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 I've always thought that um, there was an enormous place for... Uh, for me, what, what, put it another way, it's, it's always been the case that people thought that film would harm a stage show, but it's never actually proved to be the case. It's the other way round. Therefore, I, I mean, one of the things we did do in lockdown was anything that we had, which we have filmed or concerts that were filmed or anything, we put online as a, a you know, for, for free, you know, for, and, it, and uh, the Phantom of the Opera um, got sort of 18 million views. You know, it was, it was very interesting to me. And I, I absolutely think that there is a role, there is a place for this. Today, I mean, one has to think that not everybody can get to a theatre. And therefore, I am very much in favour of, of, of TV and, 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 and theatre online. I think, it's a, I think it's going to have a big future. The other thing we wanted to ask you about, Andrew, was you being president of the arts educational schools. And what hope is there for that generation? It's pretty gloomy for young people hoping for a career in acting, isn't it? I mean, it's in, in the sense that it's gloomy for everybody in the entertainment and leisure industry at the moment. Y yes, the answer is it is. But I mean, we will come out the other side. I actually think that because in a way of lockdown, things are coming out in a slightly different way. I've seen artists who I don't think I otherwise would have seen. And um, I've got a little list already of young people who um, we're following up for things. And I, I, what, the, what, of course, the social media in the, in the net does offer is platforms in a different way. And, and I, I, for example, I'd said, in fact, all of the, uh, all of the schools have been doing platforms for their, for their kids and, and for their students. So um, it's not great, but I, I think people needn't be too discouraged. I think if anybody who's any good will get noticed because everybody's looking for talent all the time. When you say you're seeing lots of young people online things, are you talking about TikTok? Because you, you've had quite a few appearances on TikTok yourself. Oh, yes. Well, that's, that's called, called having a 23-year-old daughter who works for a social <laughs> media company. And... Uh, <laughs> She's locked down with us and she said, right, Dad, you know, you need to get your social media up. And I said, why? And she said, right, well, no, I'm sorry, I'm taking it over. So my career on, is entirely masterminded by my daughter. And that's probably her on the other line phoning, saying, Dad, now we need to do something about Jesus Christ Superstar being 50 years old two days ago, which it was. Oh, was um, it? Uh, yeah, it was the 50 years ago, two days ago. It was uh, uh, the 50th anniversary of its uh, release in the United Kingdom. Should in be the a UK. holiday. 
outrageous. Well, it, 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 uh, it opened, in, well, it was released in, in England to a resounding silence. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was an Not America. <laughs> but no, nah, but that's years later, you see. It was America where it was a hit first. It was in, in November, it came out in America, and it was number one by the new year. Amazing. I mean, we, neither Tim Rice or I could ever believe it because we got on a flight to New York after this lukewarm reception in Britain to suddenly be met with a large limo the other end and be told that, you know, we were all over Time magazine. So there you go. You touched on drama school and education, but I know that music education in schools is also a passion of yours, and it's a passion of mine. I sit on the board of uh, a charity called London Music Masters. I think you work with a particular secondary school where you were very inspired by their approach and again it's something i think you may have brought up with the government yes indeed i mean i i uh, my my foundation uh, in addition to obviously um various scholarships that we have for um you know for the for schools like arts ed you know but the, the drama colleges around the country um but we're very focused on music and secondary schools trust which is uh, a, a, an extension of what i discovered at a school called highbury grove um which was a school that had been put into special measures at one time and its head teacher um I, I, I d- decided that what she would do uh was to bring music into the school. She persuaded the Wilson Trust to give every kid who arrived in the school a free violin. And they then got music lessons all through their time at school. And in many, many cases, the violin was one of the first things that, or the first thing that these kids actually owned. Well, anyway, uh, I went to a concert there where I was astonished at the range of, uh, of music that, you know, and, and how good it was and how well played it was. Uh, and of course, it's not about turning the kids into musicians. It's great if, if that happens, but it's how music managed to go, it becomes a common language. I mean, in this school, um, I, I, she, I, I, she tells me that uh, over 60 languages, different languages were spoken. I mean, I didn't even know there were 60 languages. Languages, you know, but it, it, it's it's quite quite extraordinary. Uh, anyway, Highbury was turned around in every way. They got a scholarship, uh, one of their first scholarships to Oxford, um, and and it was um, it was utterly turned around. And so, inspired by that, um, I um, thought that my foundation should try and extend this scheme to other schools. And uh, before lockdown, we were just about to have eight thousand um, kids having free music lessons and free musical instruments uh, in, in, the, in the London area. Um, in, in this, and, but, I mean, as you will know, Ed, the, uh, the, what music does is it quite extraordinary. It does, and, it, and we found the kids wanting to come to Saturday music That's schools. Amazing. Amazing. I, I keep arguing with government that it is a very, very much cheaper way because it's only £150 per, per student to give them a year's free tuition like this. The- point that people miss and unless they actually go and see it for themselves uh are the side effects so first of all you have these kids who have no you know to put it bluntly very little self-esteem suddenly they find themselves teaching the teachers yes and then when they perform a concert the parents and the grandparents come and it's the first time again this probably sounds a bit crude but it's it's the first time they see their children doing something extraordinary and it kind of it changes the whole dynamic of the entire family it's really amazing to watch 
I completely agree. And also because of it solves um, in, in the doing so many behavioral issues and everything, yeah. it would be a far, in my way, rather than spending uh, money on extra policing to try exactly. and kind of, it would be much better to spend it on, source, on sourcing the problem in the first place, exactly. um, which, which, which this does. Um, so we are entirely in agreement there. <laughs> what a good way to end. What a wonderful canter through so many different issues, some depressing but important like COVID and some utterly uplifting like Theatre Royal Restoration and the imminent arrival of Cinderella in her gold coach. And, and can well, I just ask about that? Can we book it yet? <laughs> well, you can, you can, but I can tell you she doesn't arrive in a gold coach. Uh, <laughs> uh, but one, one, last, one last thing, I've had the uh, Oxford vaccine and uh, I, I think it's important to reassure people about that because I have had apps, I've had the, it and the booster and I have had no side effects from it whatsoever. And uh, I, I gather that there is, it's really going very, very well and there is a possibility that it might be with us in the new year. And so anybody who's worried about the vaccine, all I can say is, is that I've had no ill effects at all. Brilliant. Well, that is wonderful to hear. That was the astonishingly energetic and ever positive Andrew Lloyd Webber. And we apologise for all the distracting noises during that, from Andrew's clock striking 10 to the less salubrious sound of bottles being emptied into bins from my next door pub. But we just didn't want to stop Andrew's flow. Of course, all those bottles uh, are a result of Charlotte's heavy drinking in the pub uh, <laughs> next door. But nevertheless, they did not distract <laughs> us from a fascinating conversation with Andrew covering uh, COVID's impact on theatre through to his restoration of the Theatre Royal Drury Lane, through to online theatre, through to education. It was absolutely brilliant. And we hope uh, we will continue, obviously, to monitor Andrew's response to his pioneering taking of the vaccine. We certainly will, but that's nearly all we've got time for this week. Before we go, though, we'd just like to remind you to subscribe to our What's On newsletter for all the cultural highlights that have got us talking this week at www.countryandtownhouse.co.uk slash newsletter. There you'll also be able to sign up to our monthly Great British Brands newsletter featuring a brilliant new Christmas gifts guide. Finally, don't miss our sister podcast, house guest with Carol Annette, who goes behind the scenes with some of the biggest interior design names in the business. We love your feedback, so please keep it coming. You can email us on breakoutculture at countryandtownhouse.co.uk or leave your comments on the podcast site you use. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed listening to Andrew Lloyd Webber as much as we did. See you next week. Goodbye. Take care. Bye.